You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Karen Bailey and Nelda Majors have been together for 57 years they live in Arizona, which is where they met. They met in college. They have a home in Scottsdale where they live. 57 fucking years together. They were the first same-sex couple to marry in Arizona. And so I just want to extend my heartfelt congratulations to Karen and Nelda on the occasion of your marriage. And I would encourage you, if you didn't see the picture that went out of uh, Karen and Nelda at their wedding, to go find it. Both women are wearing lovely red blazers and black slacks, and they look like the two sweetest grandmas uh, you could ever hope to have if your grandmas were dykes. They are darling, and they are about as threatening to the institution of marriage as, I don't know, as like throwing a cupcake at it might be. Karen and Nelda, of course, were just one of the same-sex couples to get married in the last few weeks after a tsunami of states uh, were forced to recognize the constitutionality and legality of same-sex marriage in the wake of a Supreme Court non-decision. The Supreme Court refused to take up a challenge to uh, other lower court marriage equality decisions and let them all stand, all these appellate courts. And that has legalized marriage in Kansas and Idaho and Oklahoma and Arizona and Nevada and all now, now 30 plus states, a majority of states, a majority of Americans now live in marriage equality states. It's not quite a done deal, but we're getting close to a done deal. If there's no conflict in any other appellate court rulings, if all the other circuit courts rule in favor of marriage equality and the Supreme Court again refuses to take it up, it's over. Marriage equality came to a fucking Alaska last week. Sarah Palin can see gay people getting married from her house. Vladimir Putin can see gay marriage from his house too. It was a terrific month, last few weeks, terrific month for equality, for progress. Meanwhile, there was a synod, which is a thing that sometimes happens in the Catholic Church. I'm sure you probably saw the reports, particularly the initial reports, when the Catholic Church seemed to be getting religion about the way people live now, the way families are formed now. The Pope a few weeks ago uh, married people in the Vatican, and it's a big deal if the Pope presides over your marriage. It doesn't happen very often. I think it's been decades since that had actually happened. And the Pope married people who had been living together before marriage. He married people who had had children together before they married. The Catholic Church used to call this living in sin and cohabitation, and it is against the Catholic law. Uh, but the Pope married these people, very symbolic act, the Pope saying we have to get real about the ways uh, people live now. And he called this synod on marriage and the family to talk about women, to talk about premarital sex, to talk about contraception, which 90 percent plus of Catholics all use, and to talk about same-sex couples, to talk about homosexuality. And there was an initial draft of a report uh, from the Vatican Synod that just – it came as a thunderclap because uh, the report said that the church was ready to recognize that homosexuals had gifts to offer the church, which is hilarious because these motherfuckers have been electing popes in the Sistine Chapel for 500 fucking years. And if they wanted to see a gift that a homosexual person had to offer the church, all they had to do is fucking look up at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo cocksucker. But it didn't occur to all these assholes over the last 500 years to look the fuck up and see, hey, maybe homosexuals have something to offer the church. 
The report, though, what was really groundbreaking about the report was not like gifts to offer. It was, it was these, th- this language. There was a section that was titled Welcoming Homosexual Persons. And that word welcoming is a direct translation from the Latin. And that's a very loaded term because churches that are gay affirming, they describe themselves as welcoming. So using that word was symbolic. And there was a reference to people in same-sex unions and it referred to them as partners and recognized that this was a good thing for people to have partners and that these relationships were beneficial and loving. And this was like, whoa, holy shit. That was just a draft report though. By the time the official report came out, the final draft, welcoming homosexual persons had been changed to providing for homosexual persons. And the reference to people in same-sex unions as partners had been changed to these people. Not same-sex couples in partnerships, but these people, which is what bigots say, right? You know, when somebody describes African-Americans as these people, when someone describes immigrants as these people, when somebody calls gay people these people, it's kind of a hate term. It's, it's not a hate term. It's used hatefully. It's somebody holding something disgusting with tongs. Ooh, these people. Ooh, ooh, over here, these people. That's what the language got changed to, to appease Roman Catholic conservatives at the Synod who were freaking out, mostly American bishops who were freaking out about this inclusive language. And then this shitty language providing for homosexual persons and these people couldn't even muster the two-thirds majority to make it into the final draft, to the final statement. So there was this thunderclap of reporting, all these reporters running around, oh my God, the church has recognized that these people like Karen and Nelda together 57 years might actually not be shitbags who are going to – might actually be decent ladies, but they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And as this was all going on, you know, I'm Catholic. I was raised Catholic. My dad was a Catholic deacon. My mom was a Catholic lay minister. I went to a Catholic seminary for two years for high school. We're pretty fucking Catholic. As this is going on, all these Catholic gay writers all over the place, uh, including my friend Andrew Sullivan, are just enthusing about this thunderclap, this 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 – groundbreaking statement from the Catholic Church and I just found myself not getting fucking swept up in it. I found myself not really giving a flying fuck. I found myself actually kind of annoyed by this church come lately shit. It's like the Catholic Church now acknowledging in 500 years after torturing or threatening to torture Galileo, acknowledging that, yeah, he was right about the movement of the planets. It took them 500 fucking years to apologize to Galileo for making him take it back when he suggested that the earth rotated around the sun and not the other way around. And here we have the church taking its first little baby steps and there will be more baby steps in the future to recognizing that same-sex couples like Karen and Nelda and Catholics who use birth control and people have premarital sex are okay. And they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They're not doing this because it's the right thing to do. They're doing this because at this point, they really have no fucking choice. They're tiptoeing up to this because we've dragged them to this, because it's hurting their market share, because overwhelming majorities of young Catholics support LGBT civil equality. The denomination in the United States most likely to be supportive, the Christian denomination, with the biggest, broadest support for LGBT equality, majorities for LGBT equality, Catholics. The church is so out of step with the laity that the church is having to go through this crazy, probably two, three hundred year dance to come around to where the laity is already at, which is that 
fucking with people because they're queer or because they're using birth control because they're having premarital sex is offensive and judgmental and not really Christ-like. There was a case in Wyoming a couple of weeks ago where two elderly guys in their 70s married and then they were chucked out of their Catholic church by their new priest. And people look at that and think, huh, who's got the problem here? The old married gay couple or the church? And people are concluding that it is the church. If the church had come around on the issue of same-sex partnerships three, 400 years ago when they were still burning gay people at the stake, maybe, maybe that would have been a progressive revelation. But this shit is like the Mormon church realizing that it's baldly racist bullshit in the Book of Mormon and not allowing black people to be in the priesthood. And then they had a revelation in the 70s after the civil rights movement, after the culture had sort of come around on racism being bad, the Mormon church, the explicitly proudly racist Mormon church had a sparkling new revelation from the prophet that they're not going to be racist anymore because it wasn't selling, right? That's what we're getting here with the Catholics now. They're coming around on these issues of sexual morality because it ain't selling, but they're not really coming around. You know, round about this for one more second. If you hate church ranting, you might want to skip the next minute. They're really not really coming around. They're just saying – Premarital sex is still wrong. Birth control is still wrong. All non-procreative sex is still wrong. Gay partnerships are still wrong. But let's be friends. You can give us your gifts, gay people. Welcome to the church. Please tithe. Please give us your gifts. And we're still going to tell you that you're going to hell because you're having non-procreative sex. And what the Catholic Church needs to do and what they aren't doing is they dance around these symptoms of their illness is they need to recognize that they have been wrong about sex and human sexuality Forever, for 2,000 fucking years. This obsession with all sex being open to contraception isn't shared by our intelligent designer, isn't shared by our creator if indeed we were created because everything about human sexuality tacks toward recreational sex. We have a lot of sex. We are designed to have a lot of sex. We are wired to want a lot of sex. Shout out to the asexuals, not you guys, of course. And for what reason? We have a lot more sex than we do babies because sex plays some other role in human life, in human societies, in our cultures. And what is that role? Release, intimacy, creates bonds, friendships, oxytocin. It does other stuff. Makes babies too. Infants, the original sexually transmitted infection. It does that, but it does so much more. And that's what the Catholic Church can't bring itself to accept because they're going to have to walk back, not the movement of the planets, which was perhaps easier for them to walk back. It just took 500 years to walk it back and apologize. They're going to have to walk back 2000 years of being misogynistic, sex phobic, and just fucking wrong and homophobic and wrong about what sex is for, what it does for us as humans and the role it plays in our lives. And so long as in the post-sexual revolution world, so long as the Catholic Church is in opposition to human sexuality as lived and experienced, we'll continue to lose market share. And eventually, because that's what it is at the bottom line, it's a business, it's a racket, it's a numbers game. That's why everyone's always boasting about being the fastest growing religion. Google fastest growing religion and just see Islam and, and Mormons and Scientologists and everybody claims to be the fastest growing religion because it's a numbers game. It's a racket and it's going to hurt their racket. This opposition to human sexuality as it's now lived and experienced and understood because they can't rely on people's ignorance and fear anymore.
and they can't control us anymore, which is why they're coming around. They can't control us. The Catholic Church last week tiptoed up to recognizing that Karen Bailey and Nelda Major's relationship is a good and decent and loving thing and then backed away from it. They tiptoed up to that realization and that acknowledgement because they know in their guts they have no choice anymore. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a straight female in my mid-20s. I'm dating a man that is in his mid-30s, and we've been together for about two years, and it's been going great. Somebody that I would want to build a future with and have a family with, which I have never thought about before him. And we see each other, you know, mutually in a long-term way. So it's a huge bummer that I think the one thing that could really ruin us is our sex life. It's pretty much the only thing that's wrong, and it's just really awkward. There is just no sexual energy between us unless we're having sex, and he doesn't seem to think it's a problem. And when I bring it up to him, saying that I really want to work on this, you know, be more work on our sexual intimacy, he'd pretty much shut down and didn't want to talk about it, and he'd get really sad or offended and just go nowhere. And he has pretty much rendered me incapable of initiating sex. Towards the beginning of our relationship, I, you know, sometimes kiss him more sensually or touch his legs. He just crotch suggestively, um, you know, get naked and rub, rub up against him. But, you know, the kinds of things I was pretty used to doing to other boyfriends and it would work. But then he told me that he didn't like any of that that he felt like I was forcing things onto him and that he, you know, felt like he needed to have more control of his body and that he just didn't like me doing any of that stuff. So I asked him then, okay, so what can I do to initiate then? If I'm feeling horny, what can I do? What do you like? You know, what, what can I do where you feel comfortable? And he would just say that he doesn't know. How can I work with that? That's, I can't work with that, right? So... I haven't really brought this up for maybe half a year now because it would be a terrible, terrible conversation that would upset both of us. And, you know, for the most part, I've kind of been tolerating the sex life. I mean, the sex itself is fine. It's just really awkward and uncomfortable and we don't talk about it. And I want to be comfortable and confident with him. You know, um, last night we had this really especially awkward sex for me and I almost like, I was crying a little bit during it and he didn't notice because it was, you know, pitch black, but I just feel like something's got to give. So how can we start to bridge this gap of communication and sex? How can I bring up my worries, my needs, my concerns without him, you know, having a big sad and feeling hurt? I'm really afraid that this one little thing is going to, make me fall out of love with him. It's funny. Last night I was uh, having a conversation with my husband about the never ending story. That movie. We used to love that movie, the never ending story. And the first question I get today when I come in is the ever coming question. Get this one all the time. If you're a regular listener, you should be able to chant my response along with me. So it's going great. It's so much fun. You have a future together, maybe a family, so much long-term potential. There's just this one little thing. The sex doesn't work. 
You're not sexually compatible. He has some sort of major sexual malfunction, and he's emotionally blackmailing you into not addressing the problem and making you feel terrible. And you're crying during sex. And he doesn't notice, which is the charitable POV, or he doesn't care. He noticed, but he didn't give a shit, which is the uncharitable. And I can be uncharitable at this hour of the day. This matters. Sexual compatibility in a sexually exclusive long-term relationship matters. Either you go to him and you say, clearly we don't have that kind of sexual connection I've had with past boyfriends. I can't live without that kind of sexual connection. But I love you and I'd like to have a future with you and a family with you. So I'm going to do that kind of crazy hot sex with other guys while we're together. We're going to have an open relationship or we're going to fix this problem together. We're going to find a way to make us – sexually compatible and good luck to you. And yes, there are books out there and yes, there are workshops out there and there are probably sex therapists out there who will work with you, but he won't read the books. He won't go to the workshops and he won't sit in a therapy session. If he doesn't understand that this is a breakup level crisis, that you are going to dump his ass, that this has to be fixed, this has to be solved or it is over. And him having a sad and trying to control you with a sad and shut you down with a sad and shut you up with a sad can't fly anymore. You have to power through this. You have to go ahead and make him feel as bad as you felt when you were weeping during sex and he didn't notice. You have my permission to make him feel at least that bad. Go to him. Go to him and say, here's the problem. We fix this problem and we have a future together. We don't fix this problem and it's over. That'll make him sad. That'll make you sad. You have to get to rock bottom sadness if there's ever any hope of you fixing this problem together. But so long as you're willing to consent to sex that makes you miserable, so long as you're willing to work around his sad, so long as you're willing to drop it or try to find some bank shot, surreptitious way to trick him into getting better about this shit because you fear upsetting him, it'll never get better. He's controlling you. He's manipulating you with his sads. So don't let that happen. Make him hugely sad. He should be sad because this relationship with this woman he purports to love, claims to love, is going to end. If he can't set the sad aside, recognize the problem, and try to fucking fix it. And if he can't fix it and my money, honest to God, sorry, my money's on, can't fix it. If you can't fix it, you have to end this relationship. Because what is this one little thing right now? You say, well, one little problem in this relationship, five years, 10 years in, and a kid or two is going to be a cancer, is going to be a tumor, is going to be toxic, and you are going to be miserable, and he is going to be miserable, and you're going to break up then or cheat then, and it ain't worth it. You're in your mid-20s. You are too young to settle for this. Mid-50s, I would think, would be too young to settle for this. But that's just me. You are certainly too young to settle for this. Hey, Dan. This is a 19-year-old therapist now in college. Um, my girlfriend is three years older than me, and she'll be graduating uh, at the end of this year, scholastic year. We had a we dated in high school, and we kind of had a similar situation where as we together approached, it wasn't as fun. We didn't really enjoy spending time together because it felt like it was kind of an expiration date hanging over us. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice as how to make the most of our time together and how to keep it fun and not stressful. 
I'm surprised you guys are having this problem because you've been through this before. In high school, you were dating and she was three years older and she graduated and you should know now that you don't have to do the same sort of head gamey bullshit you did then. Then you both began to get a little stressed out. You began to be unpleasant to each other. You began to monkey wrench the relationship, subconsciously monkey wrench it because you didn't want to be too sad when she graduated and moved away and you were left alone and she probably didn't want to be too sad when she moved away to go to college and was alone. So you guys began to be unpleasant to each other so that when you parted, you would both feel a little relieved instead of really sad. You should be able to articulate that with each other, what you did then, and you should talk about right now and say, let's not make that mistake we made where as the date of our separation approached, we became increasingly shitty and unpleasant and unhappy. As the date of our separation approached, we became increasingly unpleasant to each other so we wouldn't be too unhappy when we parted. Let's not repeat that. Let's consciously identify those moments when we're doing that. And shrug it off and enjoy the time we have together because clearly you guys have some sort of connection. You're together through high school. You've been together through college. Who knows in a few years when you guys might be able to circle back to each other. And who knows if you guys can't make an LDR happen if that's what you both want. But there's no need to preemptively shit all over this relationship so that you're glad to be away from each other when she graduates. There will be times when that feeling rises up. There will be times when that anxiety begins to be expressed in a way that's unhealthy and monkey-wrenchy and damaging to the relationship. And all you have to do is like take a time out, identify it. That's what you're doing. This is what we're doing. We're not actually unhappy together. We're not upset with each other. We're upset about this arbitrary date that is approaching, this thing outside of our relationship that's about to happen to us and we're taking it out on each other. Let's not do that. Let me eat your pussy. That's how you end that conversation. Hey, Dan. I'm reaching out with a question you probably get a lot. I am lacking intimacy in my marriage. I looked around on the internet and found a bunch of Christian-centered websites and similar things, focusing on answers uh, on how to rebuild that. Uh, and rather go straight to that, I'm uh, kind of wondering if you have thoughts or advice or where you would go to start that process. I think I have a workable marriage almost seven years in, we hit a lack of intimacy after a kind of trauma point outside of our relationship that affected us, but has kind of through fits and starts had better points, but for the last few years really has had a decline to a point where once every two months or once every three months I'm having sex. We don't have kids. We're both successful in our mid-30s both in relatively decent shape, not models, but certainly not vastly overweight or self-image problems, both probably pretty type A personalities. So uh, looking for a starting point, where would you go? What would you do? Just not ready to throw in the towel. So the Christian websites that you went to uh, with advice about how to reconnect, how to reestablish this kind of intimacy and get the sex backs into your marriage – I'm familiar with them. I'm familiar with the advice, but I want to hear from you what you learned there, what you saw. What was the advice you encountered? I think what some portions are good advice. You see things like uh, try to reconnect with your wife, try to be positive, but then it, it also goes into other things like avoid porn and do these other things. And, and yes, those may be issues for some marriages, but I, I don't believe that's an issue in my marriage. Mm-hmm. I could be missing that, but I don't, I don't see that. You know, it, it, 
it goes into reconnect with your pastor and blah blah blah. And we could we could trust those Christian websites' opinions on porn if they were generally kind of pro porn or neutral porn. Except in this instance, maybe then they would have an argument about uh, they've identified porn as perhaps a problem in intimacy light relationships, but they have a problem with porn generally and anything that they can bundle their anti-porn bullshit up with, they will. You know, if you guys weren't getting enough exercise, they would tell you to stay away from porn. If if you had hangnails, they'd tell you to stay away from porn. So just set that aside. But the rest of the advice at those websites, I think is usually similarly lousy because what Dr. Lori Broda, who was on the show last week, a uh, sex researcher at the University of British Columbia, uh, Amy Muse, all these uh, – Marilyn Chivers, all these really uh, amazing sex researchers who are working on this problem, on your emerging problem, which is the sexless marriage. Uh, and you're not sexless yet, so it's not flatlining, but it's getting close to sexless. What they've identified is that th- this advice that they give at the Christian website, which is spend a lot of time together, reconnect, go to – theme parks together, stare into each other's eyes with your pastor's help, that this is the wrong advice, that often what leads to these th- th- this lack of desire is a lack of mystery, is too much time together, is devolving from a sexual and romantic uh, relationship, which usually involves some degree of A, again, mystery, B, risk, uh, C, challenges, devolving into a best friendship and just a day-to-day sort of relay race with whatever the bullshit is that you guys have to deal with that day. And that's the enemy of desire. Everything that the Christian right tells you to do is the wrong shit to do. I'm going to tell you to spend a little less time together, to get out in the world and do some shit, not fuck other people if you guys are monogamous and want to stay monogamous, but get away from each other a little bit without creating an estrangement. Don't flee each other. But do you guys have your own hobbies? Do you have your own friends? Do you sometimes take trips alone? Do you get away from each other? We do. And I, I think those points, as is sometimes in nature, you know, we're dinks. We don't have kids. Sometimes we work too much. And I think there's the question that falls into people who work a lot. Do we do we work too much? Do we not have as much of a social life because we work too much? Do we work too much because our social life is a little light at times. I'm not going to say that's the case, but we spend a lot of time with mutual friends and a lot of time together. So your answer about trying to separate a little bit more, we do take separate vacations. Good. Um, you know, she just happened to go on one the other day. Uh, I probably have a little bit more downtime in the evenings. The nature of her job is such that it, it um, carries into the evenings a little bit more. And so it's a little harder to have time off with people in the morning when they're all at work. Okay, so you're doing that right. Are you both getting exercise? I would probably say I'm a little bit better at that than she is. Uh huh. You know, and, and again, I think that's just sort of the work demands. But neither one of us is, you know, grossly out of shape. You know, I think we're both within healthy. Um, it's it's not about it's standard. not about being grossly out of shape or some sort of uh, fascist arbitrary body ideal. It's just about blood pumping. It's just about feeling healthy. You know, your genitals and your brain are organs, and they're all attached to your 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 body. There are the blood pumps through them, oxygen pumps through them. The more blood and oxygen you pump through everything in your body, the healthier you're going to be. So I would encourage you both to get exercise if you're not, and it sounds like you are, maybe she should make more time. When you've talked to her about it, the the problem, does she acknowledge that it's a problem for her? Could this be a high libido, low libido mix match that's unsolvable because she's content at two or three months per sexual encounter and you're not? I think there is some comfort level there. I think she acknowledges that it would be better for me if it increased and, and wants to kind of help that. But you don't want to fuck her if she doesn't want to fuck. 
Exactly. You know, it kind of feels like at, at that point, uh, it's, it's not a very desirable situation. Because you're being milked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So if, if, it's just, if it's just solely about one party, there needs to be, the, the thing that I probably long for more is more of a dialogue mm-hmm. or a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and by, by dialogue, I don't mean... I don't mean a vocal dialogue. I mean a, a sexual dialogue that goes back and forth. I reward you. You reward me. We play together. Just a, a better atmosphere around a sex life. Are you meeting her needs when you guys do have sex? Does she come when she is horny? No. That, that once every two three months. No. No, and I, I want to, but there are limits placed about what you know. It's 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 really, and and this is what is challenging is she's not open to me doing those things i want to and i i, I try to i'm i you know don't go down oral sex is kind of off the table does she masturbate um, not no and i've asked her to and i, I don't push that because that you know i mean i'm not like the masturbation dictator but no okay well first of all backing up just a little bit uh when she agrees to have sex with you and it feels like she's just having sex with you for you not for her you should go ahead and have sex with her because, okay. you know, one of the tropes, the things we've discussed, Dr. Lori Broder writes about this, is that, you know, it's a cliche. And I'm going to generalize now about 3.5 billion men, 3.5 billion women. There will be hundreds of millions of exceptions. The odds that exceptions are listeners to this show are higher, right? But it is generally true, broadly true, that men get horny and want to have sex and women often start having sex and then get horny. So yeah, you kind of have to prime the pump for lack of a better term. Right. So when she says you want to have sex, okay, is deflating as that may be to hear right then, you should set that aside confident that if you get things rolling, that she will get into it, may get into it. And so don't let, you know, you're just doing this because I want to do it, stop you. So long as it's completely consensual, so long as she's not being upset or traumatized by it, so long as she's not crying in the dark with the lights off. Uh, as our previous caller was, yeah. as long as that's not, going, that. as long as that's not going on, it's fine for you to take your pleasure with her on her in her and to be conscious of the fact that you need to be looking for signals from her for, for desire from her that, that she may get into it. And when she does for you to be a receptive partner who is reciprocating in whatever ways she allows you to, it does sound like she's pretty sexually shut down. If she doesn't masturbate, yeah. doesn't want you to go down on her, doesn't want you to pay any attention to her orgasms, and that screams for some sort of couples counseling or therapy or sex therapy for her to unlock her desire or to give her the tools to articulate what it is that she wants or doesn't want. Maybe she is just very low libido. Maybe she is somewhere on the asexual spectrum, as they say, and she hasn't said these things to you for fear of being rejected, for fear of you feeling like you were romantically defrauded. In marrying her, but if those things well, and that's sort of that's that's sort of the underlying concern, and you you try not to turn everything into a, or at least I do, you know, perhaps a little bit more. Try not to turn everything into a what if is this a problem? Is this a long term problem? But it's been established long enough now that it is, it is a problem, and you need to and it's something that and you need to game it to out. On it, it needs to yeah. be worked on, but you need to work on it. But you also need to game out. What if this is an unsolvable problem? Right? What if this is who your wife is sexually? That's a little frustrating, right? Like it's not what one hopes for and dreams for. It, it, when one no, of, co- of course not. And it, that's either a breakup level event, breakup level conversation that may be not a DTMFA because it doesn't sound like you hate her. 
It doesn't sound like no. there's no, not at all. Right. So it's not dump the motherfucker in this case. It's maybe we need to part ways. Maybe we weren't sexually compatible and not a match. Or alternately, if you know, if you go to therapy and you try to unlock her desire, get to the bottom of it, and it doesn't change anything because this is who she is, a renegotiation of what your marriage is. Is it a companionate marriage? Is it an open marriage? So in 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 navigating that, you know, if it ultimately comes to that what is the navigation from from where we're at and and going uh, from a a period of you know sex every month or two months or whatever that is and and navigating to whatever that resolution is certified sex therapist the american association of sexuality educators counselors and therapists asect a a s e c t dot org you will be able to find a sex positive counselor in your area. And I really think it's important for people in these kinds of relationships to find a sex positive counselor because very often it's the person with the higher libido who's treated as the problem that needs to be solved in the relationship rather than being treated as an equal player with an equal right to his desires and needs being met as the other partner. Because we live in such a sex negative culture and that affects a lot of therapists and counselors, the sex wanter is always pathologized uh, almost always. So you got to start at ASEC to find that sex positive counselor who's not going to treat you and like you're the bad guy. I hate to say it, but I've I've had that experience in counseling already, where you can tell by the questions coming at you is that they're trying to pathologize, kind of having the higher libido, if you will. And thank God, because of some of my experiences with you, I could argue back, and the, the counselor was able to say. Well, yes, that makes sense, and that's a valid position, but <laughs> it's not where they were coming from when they started. No, and that is seems to be always the default position with so many counselors is, oh, if we could just, if we could just make the person who wants sex more not want sex at all, this would work. This relationship would work. We could save the relationship rather than accepting that the low libido partner's uh, libido is set, the high libido's partner's libido is also set, the high libido partner is miserable. That has to be addressed and. How can that be addressed without forcing the low libido partner to have sex when they don't want to have sex or a lot more sex than they would like to have? Well, there's companionate, open, or taking one for the team. And that goes both ways, the taking one for the team. Maybe the low libido has a little more sex than they would like. The high libido has a little less sex than he would like. And there's some middle ground where everyone's a little miserable. And isn't that bad? Isn't that what marriage is all about? But you need to work. You need to fix this. I can hear in your voice that – Five more years of this, and you're you're out. Well, the, the concern is is that I still love and care for this person, but I'm also a human, so I don't want it to end up that I'm responding with anger, which you can which, which you can already start to have happen as the time period extends to two or three months, right? Right. What you go to her now with is, "I love you, and I want to be with you forever. I want to fix this so I can, so we can, so our relationship and our marriage thrives." And I want to work on it and let's work on it. And that doesn't mean you have to have tons more sex than you want to have. It doesn't mean anything. We just are going to find our way to a solution, whatever that might be. We don't know what it is right now, but let's go find it to save the marriage. And who knows, maybe in counseling you can unlock her libido or maybe in counseling you can unlock open or companionate or something else that can save the marriage. But if things stay as they are right now, the marriage is doomed. It seems that way, and that's a depressing thing because I don't want it to be. You have to say that out loud. You have to say that out loud. If things stay as they are right now, I think we're doomed. You have to say that out loud. Good luck to you, man. I appreciate your time and your column, and you've been one an entertainer and a resource, and 
I'm guessing you probably don't hear thank you enough. <laughs> well, thank you. It's very sweet of you to say. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Hello, Dan. I am a gay 22-year-old male. I have been in a long-distance relationship with a 32-year-old man for almost four years. He lives about an hour away and we see each other on the weekends. Just recently, he discovered that I recently had been in other sexual relationships while we've been together. Before this happened, three years ago, I discovered that while I was deployed, he had been on a gay hookup app and absolutely refused to show me or tell me anything about it. I took his word that he had only been on it because he was depressed and needed to talk to someone, and we moved on from there. Just recently, I caught him again on another gay hookup app, and he did the same thing. Uh, refused to show me any proof of any wrongdoing, and also accused me of cheating, which I didn't do until after the second discovery. Knowing that he would never confess to her cheating, I decided to do the same thing. I adapted to the situation, and I assumed that it became a monogamous, don't ask, don't tell relationship. He has all the proof that I can give him of my sexual encounters, and I have no proof of him doing anything wrong except being on the gay hookup app. He claims to be hurt by what I did, and I don't recognize how serious my infidelities really are. I just feel that I don't have the entire story. Even if, if he is stating the truth, I still believe that I was led to believe that this is what our relationship has become. My question to you, Dan, is can a relationship continue and can the trust for each other be regained even after a pretty bad judgment call? If depressed people went on gay hookup apps and downloaded gay hookup apps, most people you would encounter on gay hookup apps would be straight people and middle-aged ladies. It just I don't I don't buy your boyfriends. I was depressed, that's why I had grinder on my phone. Some gay men do need the attention. Some gay men, uh, some of everybody, not just gay men, need this kind of attention, need the affirmation. They, they like the ego strokes. It is true that you hear from a lot of people that there are game players and flakes all over hookup apps and dating websites, people who just want to swap pictures, who have no intention of actually meeting up for the sex that they're talking with you about. And this is a huge source of frustration to people who are on the hookup apps actually looking for sex. So it is possible that your boyfriend was one of those guys who was on the hookup apps just dinking around, never actually meeting anybody, no intention of ever meeting anybody, maybe his picture is not even being him, right? That's usually the dead giveaway. There was an easy way for him to prove to you that he was one of those guys who was just using the hookup app to address his depression and get some ego boosts. And that was by showing you his chats, by showing you his pictures, by encouraging you to get Grinder to and allowing him, allowing you to see his profile. He didn't do any of that. He hid it all from you. And that's a pretty good indication that he couldn't show you what he had been doing on Grinder because it would have outed him as cheating on you on Grinder. And now you've cheated on him on Grinder after finding or on whatever dating app that you were on after finding a second dating gay hookup app on his phone. And now, you know, you just decided it was monogamous uh, and don't ask, don't tell because you assume that's what he was doing to you. And that seems a pretty safe assumption, I have to say. And now how do you salvage this relationship? Blah, blah, blah. You don't. Been LDR for four years. You met him when you were 18. You're 22 years old. 
It sounds incredibly dysfunctional. It doesn't sound like you guys communicate well. It doesn't sound like you trust him or can trust him and now he can't trust you. And if you guys can't shake hands and agree that you are in an open, non-monogamous relationship and you will no longer, from this day forward, you shall no longer police each other for evidence of what you both know to be true, which is that you're fucking other people – And you're going to stay together anyway and love each other because you guys got a great thing going. If you can't do that, it's just fucking over. And you're 22. And why not? Why not pull the plug? You're 22 fucking years old. How many people in their 30s, 40s, 50s do you know who are with the guy or the girl that they were with when they were 18, 19 years old? Probably zero or close to it. So DTMFA. There are tons of sex researchers and scientists and sociologists out there looking into human sexuality. It is a booming field, neglected for millennia, a booming field now. Every once in a while, we like to invite a sex researcher or scientist onto the show to talk about the results of some of their current research for a segment we call What Do You Got? Joining us today, Rachel Jones is a senior research associate at the Guttmacher Institute, a nonprofit think tank that studies sexual and reproductive health issues, including abortion, contraceptive use, and adolescent sexual health. While Rachel has published numerous articles on abortion and is considered one of the leading experts in this area, she also conducts research on another controversial topic, withdrawal, also known as pulling out. Hey, Rachel, thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So so before we get to what do you got, uh, Guttmacher, am I mispronouncing that? I'm certainly familiar with the Institute and I read it all the time, but I've actually never heard anyone say the name of it out loud. Did I screw it up? Nope, you got it right. It's Guttmacher. Ah, good. So all the time I've spent in Germany paid off. In, uh... <laughs> okay, so what do you got for us? Okay. Well, before I jump into the findings of the study, I wanted to back up a little bit and talk about how we ask the questions, because that's actually part of the findings. And well, we ask our questions a little bit differently than most researchers do. So first off, my study was a national study of women. We gathered data from 4,634 women, um, and we asked about sex and contraception, um, and specifically focusing uh, on contraception. Now, we ask our questions a little bit differently. Most of the time when researchers in my field um, and even healthcare professionals, when they ask women and sometimes even men about contraceptive use, they give them this exhaustive list of 15 to 20 methods, um, including some that haven't been used since the 1970s. Like, wait, wait, name a couple of those. I want to hear a couple of the ones that haven't been used since the 1970s. Oh, you know, diaphragm, right? Uh Um, That's not really around much anymore. And then ones that just aren't that common, sponges, female condoms. Um, again, they'll give you this exhaustive list uh-huh. of, of, of methods and say, you know, check all that apply. And so we adopted a little bit different strategy. So first off, we asked all the women in our study about hormonal method use. You know, we said, which of these have you used in the last 30 days, even if you use them for reasons other than pregnancy prevention? We had a list of about seven methods, pills, IUDs, depo, things like that. Um, and so in doing that, we acknowledge that women use hormonal methods for reasons other than or in addition to pregnancy prevention and also acknowledge, you know, sometimes sexually active or sexually inactive women um, are using hormonal methods. So after we asked about that, we had a series of questions about sexual activity. And among women who had had sex with a man in the last 30 days, we said, you know, which of any of these methods did you or your partner use in the last 30 days? Withdrawal, condoms, natural family planning, and other barrier methods. And we put withdrawal first on the list um, for a couple of reasons. 
Uh, first off, you know, our understanding is that a lot of people don't consider withdrawal to be a real or legitimate method of contraception. And so by putting it first on the list, you know, we're indicating, and we want to know about this method too, if you're mm-hmm. using. Um, and another thing is we hypothesize going into it that a lot of couples that use withdrawal are also using it, you know, in rotation with um, or along with other methods. And I think when you give them this list of, you know, 20 methods, it starts out from most effective to least effective. Once they checked off pill or condom, you know, they're going to move on. They're like, well, I've told you about my real contraceptive method or my primary method. So again, by putting withdrawal first on the list, uh, we figured we would increase or we hoped that we would increase accuracy. So so the the theory was that some people were using withdrawal intermittently, perhaps with other methods, but weren't indicating that in the research. So withdrawal wasn't getting which is pulling out, coming outside, for those of you who might not know what we mean by withdrawal, that the withdrawal wasn't getting the credit it deserved or wasn't getting as much attention or... Or just wasn't getting reported on surveys, again, because people don't consider it. Um, and by people, I mean, you know, lay people, sexual health researchers, healthcare professionals, they don't consider it to be a legitimate method of pregnancy prevention. And why is that? And so... Um, well, it's just gotten a bad, I couldn't tell you exactly why withdrawal or pulling out has gotten a bad rap, but there is just this kind of pervasive cultural idea that it doesn't work. Right? But, you know, but, but does it work? About. Does it work? Right. Yeah. So if you look at the research, because I used to be in that camp too, but then if you look at the research, um, it's only slightly less effective than condoms at preventing pregnancy. But that's condoms when used, the typical use, not perfect use. Perfect use condoms are more effective than withdrawal, are they not? No, they're actually, um, the numbers for both are very similar. So, for example, the perfect use failure rate for condoms is 3%. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perfect use failure rate for withdrawal is 4%. Uh, Typical use, of course, you know, most people, most men, most couples aren't perfect. So, real world practice, um, typical use failure rates for condoms are 17% and for withdrawal is 18%. It has to be said, though, that people don't just use condoms to prevent pregnancy and heterosexual sex. People also use it for disease protection and withdrawal provides no protection from disease transmission. Right, right. So a lot of times um, men and couples are using condoms, right, to to reduce the, the risk of STI, but withdrawal does not offer that protection. So when we talk about withdrawal, we do emphasize, you know, in the context of pregnancy prevention. Mm-hmm. So what did you find when you, when you did this new research, when you asked the questions this new way, when you removed the stigma attached to withdrawal that might cause people to underreport their use of that method? What did you find? Okay, so first off, perhaps, you know, not too surprising to us, we found that women were as likely to say that they or their partner had used withdrawal as they were to say they had used condoms. Um, And specifically, among sexually active women, 35% said that their partner had used condoms in the last 30 days, um, and 33% said a partner had used withdrawal. So that suggests to us by placing it first on the list, we're getting more accurate reports. And did your research go so far as to demonstrate whether the people using withdrawal were likelier to wind up pregnant than the people using condoms? Right. Well, this was just a a one-time cross-sectional study, but we have some information um, that, that does get at those issues. So it wasn't necessarily surprising to us that withdrawal was used as commonly as condoms. What we were surprised to see is that most women who reported using withdrawal had also used, they or their partner had also used some other method in the last 30 days, most typically a hormonal method or condoms, and that only a third of uh, couples that rely on withdrawal rely only on withdrawal. So it's a belt and suspenders approach for a lot of women. I'm, you know, I'm on hormonal birth control, <laughs> right. but I would still be more comfortable if you came on my stomach rather than right. in my body. Exactly. Just to be on the um, super safe side. So... 
Correct. Right. Because we also right because we also broke it out. Well, we looked at well, what are the characteristics of you know these different withdrawal use profiles? Who are who are the the women that are using it? You know, in rotation with or in addition to, you know, hormonal methods and condoms, and who's using only withdrawal? So couples that are doubling up or women that are doubling up um, tend to be younger, eighteen to twenty-four, tend to be in dating relationships as opposed to marital and cohabiting relationships, mm-hmm. and tend to have a strong say. They very much want to avoid getting pregnant right now. So you know, it seems to be a population of women who are strongly motivated to not get pregnant, and you know, it seems that they're using withdrawal as you know, extra insurance or doubling up. So what's the, you know, from an institute like Guttmacher and you're a senior research associate, what's the advice? Like, okay, there's no condom around, you know, go ahead, do withdrawal. You're about as safe as you were with condoms. Or is withdrawal officially discouraged by sex educators and institutions like Guttmacher? Well, because we don't necessarily encourage um recommend any method over other ones. You know, the I think the philosophy on that is different methods are best suited. You know, it's up to the individual to determine which methods are best suited to them. I do think one implication from this research is that, you know, given that we're a research institute, is we would just like other researchers to maybe do a better job of measuring. Like, people are using it, but you're not capturing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing a better job of measuring it. And also just for healthcare providers and sexual health educators, um, sex educators, to talk about it. What's the takeaway for the lay person or the about-to-get-laid person from this research into withdrawal? From what we know about withdrawal, what's the, you know, if you were boiling it down to a little bit of advice for a friend who is sexually active and 18 years old, like use a condom if there's not a condom, you know, use a best idea, best practice, use a condom and withdrawal. If there isn't a condom and you really want to do it, Use use withdrawal, but you got to really trust the guy. Right. If you don't, right. It's certainly if there's nothing, if you're not going to use, if you don't have any other method on hand, and you're going to have sex, then by all means, you're going to substantially reduce the risk of pregnancy if you pull out. But not necessarily disease. Right. Well, not necess- definitely not risking the chance of a STI transmission if your partner has an STI. The way we talk right. about STIs and unprotected sex sometimes makes it sound like it's spontaneous combustion as if sexually transmitted infections <laughs> right. are generated by unprotected sex. Somebody has to have a sexually transmitted infection to pass one on. But still, all things being equal, better to use the condom, super safe, use the condom and withdrawal or swallow. <laughs> you really want to avoid pregnancy, why don't you have oral sex? The both of you. Well, there you go. Um, but I, you know, that's obviously not a uh, strategy that a lot of um, couples are going to adopt. And let me also emphasize in my, um, in our research, like most of the women, um, most of the 4,634 women were married or cohabiting. Um, and a lot of them, it was more common, especially again, the doubling up of withdrawal with using withdrawal with condoms or using withdrawal in a hormonal method was most common among unmarried women. But there were plenty of, of married and cohabiting uh, women who were also using withdrawal as well. We understand that withdrawal is not a good method for a lot of couples, Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of guys. And so we're not advocating that people use it. We're just acknowledging that it substantially reduces the risk of pregnancy. And, you know, knowledge is power. So people need to need to have full information so that they can make the right decision. And also, I think your research shows that people who are using this method aren't being irrational danger junkies. Right, exactly. That it is effective, almost as effective as condoms. In conjunction with condoms, it's probably super duper effective. Right, exactly. 
Exactly. That um, a lot of withdrawal users seem to be super responsible, um, that they seem to be using it because they're super responsible or super motivated to avoid pregnancy. And I think that's really, I think that is the takeaway. I think that's really important because I, even I was guilty of this years ago, stigmatizing people who use withdrawal as reckless and, and ridiculously stupid. And the proof is in the pudding, the proof is in the data and the research, and it isn't stupid, it isn't reckless. It is highly effective when it comes to pregnancy prevention. Again, not disease prevention. And someone who is using this method isn't being a moron. Exactly. It may be the best available method for them and exactly. a legitimate choice. Rachel Jones, Senior Research Associate at the Guttmacher Institute. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today for What You Got. Oh, great. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about our research. Hello, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a straight, late-20s male from Canada. Yesterday, my partner of two and a half years broke up with me. It's been tough. I'm not going to lie. She saw me at my lowest point of depression and saw it how it made me into the person I am today. The reason for my call is that there's one thing I don't know who to talk about with other than you and your crew. I have talked with my friends, but I feel humiliated to unpack this on them. So here goes. She broke up with me because she did not want to fuck me. Straight up. The passionate sexual intimacy was gone. As a man and a sexual person, I am humiliated. I'm trying to exercise all of my means to deal with this and get through it alive. And I plan on speaking to a therapist from work perspective because I am having trouble dealing with the fact that I was an inadequate lover for the person that I felt so much love for. Thank you for listening. You got to snap out of it. You say that she broke up with you because she didn't want to fuck you anymore. But a beat later, a second later, you say that the passionate sexual intimacy was gone. So the passionate sexual intimacy, the sexual connection was there at the beginning. There was a sexual connection. You were more than adequate at the beginning of the relationship. You guys had great, hot, passionate, fun sex. And then as you were together longer, as she realized that maybe you weren't who she wanted to be with for the rest of her life. As issues emerged that were emotional or social deal breakers, she became less attracted to you over time. And it was the emotional stuff, which is part of dating, which isn't – you didn't fail in any way. You're not an inadequate human being as because she realized she didn't want to be with you. That's what people do when they're in their 20s and they're dating over the, a year or two. And sometimes people drag that out a little too long, particularly when they're young. She discovered that you weren't what she wanted and she eventually ended it. And it wasn't that the sex was bad and you were an adequate lover that caused her to end it. The sex got bad because she knew that she wasn't into you anymore, emotionally into you. She couldn't commit to you and her desire for you, her sexual desire for you collapsed. Doesn't mean you're a shitty lover. Doesn't mean you're a shitty person. Doesn't mean you're a bad boyfriend. Just means you were the wrong boyfriend for her and she was the wrong girlfriend for you. And the takeaway here is I need to go find a new girlfriend and we're going to have probably great, passionate, crazy sex at the beginning, just like I had with my last girlfriend. And hopefully it'll work out this time. Hopefully during the dating discovery process, the first year or two we're together, there won't be any deal breakers identified. I won't uh, drive her off. She won't drive me off. And it'll keep working. So stop it with the pity party. 
You're not an inadequate lover. That passionate sexual intimacy at the start, you didn't get bad at sex after that. And so she dumped you. The sex got bad after that for her because she realized she wasn't that into you. You'll find somebody who's that into you and the sex will continue to work. Trust me. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight female from the East Coast calling about a breakup. Um, my boyfriend and I recently had a talk and it kind of boils down to that we both really want to be together. We really have this amazing, great relationship, but he feels that I deserve better, that I undersell myself, and that he couldn't give me what I need. And it leaves me really frustrated because I don't know how to deal with this. How do I deal with somebody who makes me happy and doesn't believe that or doesn't want to be there? It's frustrating and I want to feel like I did everything I could before moving on. It's not up to the condemned at the execution whether or not the condemned is going to die. And when you're dumped... That's kind of somebody executing the relationship. And it's not up to you whether the relationship dies. The relationship has been killed because somebody executed it. You don't get to negotiate with the executioner at that point. You've been dumped. This relationship is over. It has been executed. Your boyfriend trotted out, your ex-boyfriend, a couple of little white lies. You deserve better. You're underselling yourself. And what he's saying there is you're a good person but you're not the person I want, but I don't want you to think you're a bad person and you're not a person that somebody else might want because you're a great person. You're just not the person or one of the people that I need or that I want and I can't see us together for the long term. And he sent you packing with these white lies that you didn't get the decoder ring. You didn't auto-translate. And here's the decoder ring. Here's the auto-translate. You deserve better. I want somebody else. That's what he meant. I want somebody else. But you're wonder. you're really nice and somebody else – is going to be your partner because you're not a terrible, awful person. That's why I'm not lighting into you as I break up with you. That's why I'm not salting the earth here. That's why I'm trying to be pleasant and build you up even as I let you down and let you go. Because I like you. I just don't want to be with you. And so it's over, executed. The relationship is done. So how do you deal with somebody who makes you happy but doesn't want to be there? You wave goodbye at that person. You shake their hands and tell them that you enjoyed the time that you were together because as far as you were concerned, it had a real, it had real potential. And then you get the fuck on with your life. You date other people. You have your big sad. You eat your ice cream. You talk to your girlfriends or whatever it is that you do when you're having your big sad. And then you get the fuck out of the house and you go fuck some other people and you date some other guys and you don't hang around waiting for him to call. Maybe. He will be the exception. Maybe he is the 0.01% of people on earth who say these sorts of things. It's not you. It's me. It's not the right time in my life. I'm so busy with work and school right now. I don't have time for a relationship. 0.01% of the people who say that are actually telling the truth. But nine, one, 99.99% of the people who say that are lying and they're never coming back. Maybe he's the 0.01% who in six months or a year will circle back to you and want to pick it up. And if you're still single then – you could maybe agree to go out with him again. But you may not be single then. You may have met somebody you like more than him, someone you're more compatible with, someone who's sure that they want to be with you. So I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad, harsh news here, but somebody's got to be the decoder ring. 
And it looks like today it's me. Polly Superstar is one of the co-founders and the hostess of the infamous sex culture community party thing happening event in San Francisco called Kinky Salon. There are now kinky salons in cities around the world. She's also the author of a new memoir called Polly Sex Culture Revolutionary. And she's joining us by phone today. Hey, Polly, how are you doing? Hi, Dan. I'm doing good. So for people who may not be familiar with your amazingness, who are you and why are you so amazing and how did you get that way? Well, um, wow, that's such a nice thing to say. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> well, you know, I've been uh, throwing these parties in San Francisco for about 13 years. They're called Kinky Salon. And it's kind of like a new brand, a new breed of sex parties where they're not so focused around sex. Like, it's not that sex is all you do there. There's also, like, lots of creativity and there's a cabaret and they're kind of costume parties. And it's like a, a, a kind of a new... Um, take on the traditional sex party. And so my uh, life has led me now to a place where we have events all over the world and where I recently wrote this memoir about all my adventures. Um, so I have a big following in San Francisco of lots of people that come to my parties and now in other cities too, which is very exciting. And what is a kinky salon party like? There's art, there's, it's not just a pile of people on a mattress in a the corner. There's art, there's community, there's drinking and dancing and performance and occasionally naked people here and there having sex. Let's be clear. There is a pile of people in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also the, the thing that's really different about kinky salon is that it's all about the community. And so it's, you know, most sex parties and sex clubs are kind of anonymous, whereas mm-hmm. Kinky Salon is really all about the love and it's all about relationships and, um, and it's very volunteer run. So it has this really super friendly vibe to it. And that's really what Kinky Salon is about. It's about the friendliness. And it's for everybody. It's gay, straight, bi, trans, kinky, vanilla. Anything, anything that you can think of. Yes, we welcome all. (laughs) But it's a safe space too. I have friends who go and it is not uh, a free for all. There are not, you know, not heavy handed rules and rule enforcement, but people are looking out for each other and there are community norms that are enforced. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we have in place, which is what makes Kinky Salon in terms of the structure of the event really unique is we have what we call the, P- the PAL system, which stands for Pervy Activity Liaison. <laughs> and the idea, the idea is that you come with a friend. It doesn't have to be a date. It can be somebody of any gender. Um, and you're basically agreeing to keep an eye on that person for the night. And so everybody is responsible for the person that they come with. And so there's this distributed accountability where instead of having to police the event, um, every person that's there is taking responsibility for another person there. So it creates a really safe space. Because in the past, if your friend, if you went to a sex club with your friend and they were like got too drunk and were like acting all weird and like, you know, grabbing on people or whatever, you'd just be like, oh my God, my friend is being weird. I'm going to leave, right? Mm-hmm. You just leave them there. Whereas in our community, people are tapped on the shoulder and told, hey, you know, what are you doing? Like, if you keep acting like this, I'm going to be kicked out. So it's like you're both held responsible for the behavior. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, it really changes the dynamic. So how how did you wind up in this business or how did you come to this calling? It sounds like you are a Brit. Am I correct? I am, Yes, I am. I'm from London originally. I moved to San Francisco in 1999. And how, um, did, uh, <laughs> how what was your trajectory? How did you go from uh, 
proper Brit to uh, San Francisco's sex party hostess. (laughs) Okay, improper Brit. I was never a proper Brit, I'm afraid. I was a British (laughs) pervert. (laughs) So I started going to clubs, fetish clubs in London, really young, like way too young. I was 16 when I went to my first fetish club and got really involved in the in the in the fledgling um fetish scene in London in the 90s it was just starting like i was at the very first torture garden which is now this huge and very well established club like i went when i was still in school you know <laughs> <laughs> so um so i was already very involved in the fetish scene i became a latex fashion designer uh when i left school and started making latex clothes and when i moved to california which was really just out of a spirit of adventure and because London is kind of a miserable town. I don't know if you've been there, um, but I, had, I was having a really hard time there. So I followed an opportunity and came to San Francisco and started making clothes here and um, realized that there weren't really that many clubs that you could dress up at. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll throw a club to kind of create demand for my own product. <laughs> That was smart. That was smart. I started throwing parties, and it was so much more fun than making clothes. I was like, "Oh wow, yeah, let's leave that behind." And um, and and that's how my path towards being an event producer and community builder really grew. So, while we have you on the phone today, would would you take a couple of questions? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Dan. Twenty-seven-year-old bisexual and polygenial here. Um, I'm having trouble with the transition. Um, for the past four years, I've had a pretty intense relationship with a man that I fell in love with outside of my marriage. My husband was really wonderful about it, and him and my boyfriend were actually good friends themselves. We all three hung out together, and it was really perfect. Um, but I'm calling because six months ago, my boyfriend moved like a thousand miles away for work. Um, and to say that I was crushed it was like a huge understatement. Um, but he was such an important person to me, and when he left, it just blew a huge hole in my life. I was also seven months pregnant when he left and really didn't have much of an emotional reserve to deal with him actually leaving. But we were doing a long-distance thing, um, and he was coming out to visit whenever I could afford to fly him out. But here's my problem. Last month, he met and fell in love with another woman, and he'll be moving in with her in the next few weeks, and this doesn't really bother me, but she's not cool with open relationships. So the best sexual partner I've ever had, the only one I've ever truly clicked with sexually, and this man that I love enough to marry is now exclusive to someone else. How do I transition from lover and life partner to platonic best friend? I'm happy for him. He very much deserves this in his life, but I'm struggling with feeling like I just don't matter anymore. So is Polly your given name? Yes, it is. I was born Polly. (laughs) (laughs) And are you actually uh, P-O-L-Y Polly now? Well, you know, I don't really like those kinds of strict labels. Um, I think it's more like a spectrum. There's, you know, all kinds of opportunities in relationships. And um, there are some people who define poly in a very specific way. And so I I don't define myself in a very specific way like that. I think it depends on the people that I'm with. Have you been involved in concurrent romantic and sexual relationships? absolutely. Absolutely, I have been involved in in concurrent relationships. Okay, well, I'm putting the label Polly on that in my mind, but I'm not going to say it out loud because I don't want to say it. <laughs> okay, because that looks like Polly to me. Yeah, and, but it's but it's also you know I'm single right now as well, and there's all kinds of opportunities. Like, I, I, who knows? 
what the future holds. <laughs> well, I, I actually agree with you there, and sometimes I get in trouble with poly folks because, I mean, kind of what you're saying there is, you know, maybe there's a monogamous relationship in your future, or you might be... Well, I would never be sexually monogamous. That's not in my future. Emotionally monogamous. I could... Perfect. It depends. I don't know. The circumstances have not lifted their heads. I can't imagine not fucking someone else for the rest of my life. That's just crazy. But, <laughs> but you know, like, you know, relationships changing, maybe a period of time where you close things down to create safety and trust. Like, mm-hmm. who knows? There's all kinds of options. Okay, so this woman, let's talk about her option right here, which she, she's kind yes. of out of options. Her ex-boyfriend is involved with somebody else in a closed monogamous relationship. And this is one of the, you know, typically when we talk about open or poly relationships, we talk about the fun, we talk about the adventure, the excitement, but it does create new opportunities for heartbreak. Oh, absolutely. It's certainly not the easy path. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I worry about this guy for a start because he's um he's changing his relationship style and for somebody else and their needs. And that always worries me. I mean, it's possible to negotiate those kinds of relationships to have different like inherent relationship styles and then come together and and shift. But I I worry about him and whether he's doing the right thing for himself. But I'm also kind of like well, you can't really have a sexual relationship when someone's a thousand miles away anyway. So what difference is it going to make to them, you know? Well, she was flying him in every once in a while uh, for, oh. for visits and trysts. And, okay. and, and, you know, and it's also possible that the guy prefers a monogamous relationship model, but for her, he made an exception. For her, he was willing to you know, uh, broaden his perspective and maybe, you know, live a little and experiment with a poly relationship model. But now he's tacking back toward what he's more comfortable with or, or may even prefer, which is a monogamous relationship. You know, he fell in love with somebody who had a husband and could wrap his mind around then poly. I think that's a lot of what sometimes brings people into poly or open relationships is sometimes Absolutely. people get attached to someone who the only way they can be with that person is to share that person. And p- someone who said, I could never share is suddenly sharing but when mm-hmm. that relationship ends, they may go back to what they're more comfortable with. And maybe that's the case with this guy. But I don't know. We're just speculating. She doesn't unpack it for us. Who knows? But there's really no, <laughs> there's really no answer here. How do you handle the transition from lover to life partner to best friend? Uh, you, it's not something you handle. It's something you were handed. The guy, yeah. it, it's over and you've kind of – it's done. You've been dumped and that hurts and that sucks and you get to have, you get to have a sad. Yeah. I mean I think that – um, it's the ultimate question of heartbreak, right? How do you transition from being a lover to being a best friend? I think it's something we all struggle with, whether you're polyamorous or monogamous. It doesn't really make, doesn't make any difference. Everybody has to face that at some point in their lives. Um, I think the the best way is to is to continue to communicate. I think that when you take a when you stop communicating, that always makes things weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I think communication is really the best tool for healing and for moving through things. And if you really want to stay best friends with somebody after you've broken up, then 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 you just have to work at it. And it might be hard for a while. One element that's often not discussed, I think, when these sorts of situations come up, somebody in a poly relationship, somebody with a primary partner, their secondary partner or their other partner moves away or dumps them and they're devastated, they're heartbroken. What impact does that have on the primary partner who's still standing there? Like here's the husband, his wife was dumped by her boyfriend and she's devastated. 
And he's standing there thinking, what am I, chopped liver? Am I the consolation prize? You know, am I not enough? Uh, clearly not enough, right? But am I no consolation? It's a definitely a weird part of being of being polyamorous and being in multiple relationships because that does happen. I mean, I was in a long-term uh, relationship for, for 10 years and it happened to me where my partner was completely heartbroken when he broke up with his girlfriend. And it's a, a weird, a weird kind of nurturing vibe came over me though. Like I did have a lot of compassion for him and I was really, you know, I didn't feel that the, the chopped liver thing. I didn't feel mm-hmm. like I was a, a spare and that he was, I just allowed him to go through that experience. I think that's part of polyamory is that you get to have those highs and lows with a supportive partner, which is an amazing boon to have. I mean, that's something to look at and say, Hey, at least you're not heartbroken on your own. <laughs> yeah. And I would also to look at not taking her primary partner for granted at those moments that yeah, she, she definitely. has a right to ask for consideration and compassion. She should also give those things, not by downplaying her heartbreak if she's honestly experiencing it, but also, you know, making an effort to tend to his needs at that moment too, to, to, to be there for him may be a good way to get your mind off your own pain. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. We got one more call for you. Okay. Hi, Dan. I was calling because my cousin recently came out to me as pansexual. I asked her what the difference was between that and bisexual, and she didn't have a great answer. Just that she loves everyone. Do you have any insight on this? Okay, Polly, in 25 words or less, the difference between pansexual and bisexual. Well, bisexual is binary. It refers to men and women. But pansexual refers to everyone because gender isn't binary. There's not just men and women. So what your cousin is saying is that they are attracted also to trans people and gender variant people. And agender and bigender and gender fluid people. All all of the different beautiful colors of the rainbow. Yes. All the permutations. Everyone. Do you think, though, it's time for maybe, you know, just a time out on the invention of new terms and new... Ter- I don't think pansexual is a new term. Pan-sexual no, 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 I don't think pansexual, but agender, bigender, pansexual, demisexual, uh, aromantic, biromantic, fluid... Every time I get online, there's like 14,000 <laughs> new thinly sliced sexual minority communities um, whose names I have to know by heart before I sit down in front of a microphone every day. Uh, it, it does seem like it's metastasizing somehow. But just the terminology. And sometimes terms to describe the same thing. Because you, you say bi reinforces the gender binary that a lot of people rightly reject. But you, you go to bi sites now and you have a lot of people making the argument that bi refers to an arc that goes from male to female and encompasses all the gender variant people in the middle and is not necessarily – uh, reinforcing the binary or invested in it. So maybe bi and pansexual mean the same thing then? Well, it's a question of semantics, really. I mean, this is how language grows. You know, every day new words are invented and uh, new labels are put on things. I think some people feel more comfortable with particular labels and they have, like, it helps them to create their identity in the world, in a world where their identity might not be socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. They, can, they, can, they can relate to a specific word and know that people who relate to that word are going to be able to understand who they are. And so I think it's a natural reaction for people 
people to want to label themselves. And then I think it's also a natural reaction for people to say, I don't want labels, don't try and pin me down. Um, so I think it's just a way of being human and a way that we organize the world in our brains, in our monkey brains. Well said. Polly Superstar, she's the author of the new memoir, Polly, Sex Culture Revolutionary. And she's the hostess of the infamous and totally awesome sex culture community party salon, kinky salon down in San Francisco. And where else? Where are you now also? Oh, gosh. We're in London, Berlin, Copenhagen, New York, Portland, Austin, New Orleans. Where's the website people can go to learn more about Kinky Salon and you and your book? KinkySalon.com is where you can find Kinky Salon and SexCultureRevolutionary.com is where you find my book. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Polly. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 32-year-old straight male, and I'm calling about a situation with my stepbrother. My stepbrother's 35, and I've known him for about eight years now, and he has always been a virgin. And when he first told me after we met, I made it my mission to try to get him laid. And somehow, all my attempts were thwarted by him. He would either get completely blackout drunk when I would introduce him to girls, or he would just be so nervous and standoffish. And it was like he made every attempt to not get laid. I mean, this guy's my best friend. I know he's not gay. I know he wants to have sex. I know he wants to have a girlfriend. We talk about these things, and when it's just me and him, he tells me how bad he wants to do these things. So I go to the ends of the earth to try to help him out, and he just screws it up every fucking time. I don't know what to do. I don't know. The guy goes to work. He comes home and gets drunk and passes out, wake up, and repeat. Every day. He doesn't go out. He doesn't meet people. He refuses to get on dating websites. He refuses any kind of interaction with anybody. And I'm just at a loss. Stop trying to help your brother or your stepbrother, whoever the fuck this person is. Listen to what his actions are telling you. He's telling you that, oh, he's so sad. He's a virgin. He wishes he could have sex. He wishes he had a girlfriend. But his actions tell you that... That isn't true, that he actually doesn't want to have sex. He's not interested in a girlfriend. And let's think for a moment why that might be. Maybe he's asexual. Maybe he has such disturbing sexual fantasies or desires that he is one of those people who realizes that he can never act on his sexual impulses or desires. And so he just tamps it all down and has made it to age 35 without ever acting on anything. He's not interested in having normal sex because he's not interested at all and it doesn't it doesn't turn him on at all and the things that do turn him on are so scary or they're so non-existent because he's asexual or whatever maybe he is gay and he's just not out to you but for whatever reason he feels obligated to pretend that he wishes he was sexual and that is one of the asexual complaints in our hypersexualized culture is that there isn't a space for people just to say they have no interest to opt out because they will be viewed as somehow damaged or abnormal or freakish, which is how you seem to view your brother. That there's something terribly, terribly wrong with him because he hasn't had sex. Well, maybe he's not interested in sex, but he feels like he has to pretend to be interested lest you think there's something wrong with him. And then he monkey wrenches every attempt that you make to get his dick into a pussy because he has no interest in putting his dick in pussy. So back that you did your best. You took him at his word. But his actions have 
revealed that his words are lies and now you just have to back the fuck off. His dick ain't your dick and you don't have to feel sorry for him. Just let him stew in his own 35 years worth of juices and if he ever wants to get laid, it's on him. You did what you could and you got to stop. You got to stop. It's a fool's errand at this point. Knock it the fuck off. Hey, Dan. I would like to comment in response to the woman from your live podcast who is straight but only likes lesbian porn. I think the scientific explanation seems a little bit too complicated. So much hetero porn is obviously made for the boys. I, I know that watching extended blowjob scenes or a guy coming on a girl's face doesn't really do it for me, especially since I'm not usually attracted to the kind of guys that do porn. But lesbian porn is all about female pleasure. You get to watch two ladies making each other feel good without some goofy dude that you don't even know getting in the way. (laughs) That makes sense to me. Hi, I'm calling in response to episode 416. Dr. Lori Brado talked about the wonders of sexual exploration during pregnancy. And I am absolutely thrilled for her that she loved it but I don't want to give the rest of us women a bad name. I have a very voracious sexual appetite normally, but when I was pregnant, it was just too much. I, however, mastered hand jobs like I hadn't known how to do them in years, and my husband was very, very pleased. So uh, that came back, and now we've had a baby. Sex is delightful. But please, for those of us who found sex during pregnancy physically uncomfortable, let it be known that not everyone loves it, but it does come back. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Polly Superstar on Twitter at Polly Superstar. And you can learn more about her book superstar.com interwebs Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast thanks for having me